0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for
1: designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. at canva.com. Designed for work.
2: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from DesignObserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Dominique Browning about her career as a journalist, a shelter magazine editor, and about how to slow down and appreciate what's in front of us. I look back and think, why was I doing two things at once? You know, we're such great multitaskers. We need to learn how to monotask. Here's Debbie Millman.
1: In the past few years, a lot of Americans lost their jobs and have been struggling to reinvent themselves professionally. When the magazine House and Garden shut down in 2007, Dominique Browning lost her job as editor-in-chief. It was a shock, but it was also the beginning of another adventure in her remarkable career as a journalist, editor, and author. She wrote a heartfelt book about the experience titled Slow Love, How I Lost My Job, Put on My Pyjamas, and Found Happiness. In today's broadcast, we're going to talk about her book, as well as the art of living, and about how design fits into the world around us. Welcome to Design Matters, Dominique. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I want to ask you one of my favorite questions that I like to ask guests that I don't know prior to their coming on the show and whose work I so admire. So I was wondering if you can tell us about your first memory of ever being creative.
2: Well, you know what? I have a very vivid memory of being creative as a writer, when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, and there was something in the local newspaper that was extremely sexist. And really? Do
1: you remember what it was?
2: I can't remember, but it was something relating to local politics. My father still has the clip, and I—I I must have been 13 or 14, actually, and I— wrote an impassioned letter as a feminist saying, this is outrageous behavior and how could you talk this way and the newspaper shouldn't even be publishing things like this. And it was published, you know, as a letter to the editor. Wow. And I was so thrilled. (laughs) So was that when you knew you wanted a career as a writer and journalist? No, no, I should have. But I should have realized that. But I had no idea. I walked into the magazine business by mistake. Really? Mm -hmm. How so? How do you walk into the magazine business by mistake? You know, I graduated with a degree in philosophy, literature, and history. And I decided I did not want to become an academic. And my sister was at the gym when she was in college, and she overheard somebody talking about the Radcliffe publishing course. And she knew that I was desperate for a job. And she called and said, maybe you should go to this course and learn something about publishing. And that's how it happened. And that's how it happened.
1: Now, your first job after the Radcliffe publishing course was at American Photographer. You also worked at Savvy. And then you went on to become an associate literary editor at Esquire. How did you manage to get these significant jobs so early on in your career?
2: Well, we're skipping a step in there, which is that I I did work at American Photographer and Savvy, and they were in startup, and therefore I was doing a lot of work on the circulation side. I was learning about business, and I thought, you know, I really want to be an editor. I want to be in the writing side, and so before I get too far down the business side where they're actually offering you an annual salary as opposed to a weekly salary, I I had better (laughs) find another job. And at the time, Esquire had gone fortnightly. Clay Felker was running it. And Binky Urban, Amanda Urban, was the overseer of the entire staff. And she hired me after firing a couple of receptionists and a few secretaries. So I went there as a slave, not as an associate literary editor. But it must have been incredibly fun, even to be a slave. crazy and fun, incredibly crazy. And I remember that I cried every single day because it was so hard. And I had all these men yelling at me about they wanted this and they wanted that. And couldn't I keep track of who wanted a key for which hotel at what time? And, you know, just stuff that had nothing to do with running a magazine. It actually sounds a little madmen like It was so Mad I mean, Mad Men is tame compared to what was going on. <laughs> and at one point, I remember going to an older woman, a secretary, who had been there for 30 or 40 years. And I said, how do you do it? And she opened her drawer up, and there was a gun and a bottle of bourbon in Oh, my God. The- <laughs> That's awesome, I thought, okay. had she ever
1: used the gun on the job? I, she may have brandished it. Who knows <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, so you then went on to break the glass ceiling at Newsweek. What was that like? I mean, were people welcoming of you? Were they giving you a hard
2: time about your cracking that ceiling? both? Newsweek was an organization that had had very little change for many, many years. And people came in and worked their way from the bottom up. And I think there was some resentment that an outsider was walking in and moving up the ranks so quickly. And having a woman in such a position was really unusual in a news magazine. And then Last but not least, I didn't come out of the so-called hard news organization. I came out of what now nobody thinks of as soft news, but what was soft news. And in those years, when I got there in the mid-'80s, it was controversial to do cover stories on things like family issues and psychology and things like that. People considered that to be demeaning to a news magazine, and media critics were writing about what's happening to the news magazine. Were they blaming it on you? Yeah, well, I mean, I was the one who was producing these covers, and it was outrageous because it was a complete lack of understanding of how serious and important a lot of these issues are to American families, as serious as what was going on in Washington. Anyway, that culture obviously has done a 180 in that time, but it it was a difficult period.
1: Newsweek seems to have made up for not changing for so many years just in the last 12 months, I guess. And it's, it's a really interesting trend having the Daily Beast hooking up with Newsweek and with Huffington hooking up with AOL. And it seems to be just another iteration of the mergers and acquisitions of the late 80s and the 90s with Time Warner and so forth. And I wonder what the future of these mergers has in store for us as the readers of the news. It's very hard to know what to trust anymore.
2: Yeah, that's true, because people don't know where the revenue streams are going to be. So they're kind of throwing everything out to see what sticks and what happens. And this paywall at The Times is the next thing that's going to hit us. Yes, I got that note yesterday from them. Well, I mean, you know, it is an interesting time to have switched roles and to have gone from being an editor to being a writer because I'm shocked at how much work people want for free. And that's part of the ruination of what's happening. If you want good content, you have to pay for it. And we have to be willing to support organizations like The Times. But The Times, on the flip side, has to price itself properly. If you're buying the Times Online, you're not paying for paper, you're not paying for printing, you're not paying for delivery. It should be a fraction of the cost, but it's not. Yeah. So all of that is still sorting its way out. But what happens over and over again, and this is what happened with Huffington Post, it's the bloggers and the writers who are paying for all of this. You know, We're the ones who are not being paid to produce the content that is being sold for a fortune. So where's the money going? Well, we know the answer to yeah. that. So in 1985,
1: you were appointed editor-in-chief of House and Garden, which had gone away for a while after being rebranded HG. What was it like to become the editor-in-chief of this iconic magazine?
2: Well, part of it was incredibly exciting because it was iconic. That was also the challenge because I had to figure out how to make something that still had some of its DNA as an institution, an American institution that our grandmothers read, but that was modern and for today's reader. So that was really challenging and really interesting. And it was a lot of fun. It was sort of a high wire act because, of course, everybody had an opinion about what house and garden should be and how it should be done.
1: Were you as involved in homemaking
2: and gardening prior to becoming editor of the magazine? Yeah. And I read all the so-called shelter magazines as my escapist literature. And I actually, because of that, had a really deep knowledge of, you know, 15 years worth of all of the competition. But I never thought I would work in that category. That was just was one of these weird things life throws your way so it wasn't something that you were seeking did you question whether or not
1: it was something that you should do when you were offered the position
2: yeah definitely because you know I'd been at newsweek I'd been at texas monthly I'd been at general interest magazines so i wanted to feel that i could make house and garden more general interest and cover lots of things that were tangentially related to homes but not necessarily about design so i i you know i did think about that however There are not very many times in the magazine business when somebody hands you a blank slate, a big check, and says, go and make a magazine, invent it. And that turned out to be an offer that was too good to refuse.
1: Now, is it true that you were berated for not wearing fashionable enough clothes?
2: Um, designer clothing. Although the problem is that I'm drawn to designers who look like they're not designers. So. <laughs> but yes, my, one of my – I had six publishers in 12 years, which was what happened to the magazine. is a constant turmoil on the business side. And one of them, in her reach for what was wrong, started in about, oh, she's not wearing enough designer clothing. And so I was called into the president's office, which was ridiculous and was quickly straightened out. I was a subscriber
1: to House and Garden from the day that you started editing the first issue till the last. And your editorial was the first thing that I read when I got the magazine. I remember once reading your column as soon as I took the magazine out of my mailbox and I was still in my coat. That's how involved I was in your life through the editorials. What made you put so much of yourself in those pieces?
2: Well, the editorial was really a way of trying to tell readers that even though we were showing perfect rooms and perfect gardens, life is not perfect and things happen. Crazy things, bad things, sad things, wonderful things happen in those rooms and that the point of all of this nesting and decorating is life and living as good a life as we possibly can. I also wanted to remind people about why this mattered, that design is not an airhead subject, that it's an important subject. And that making a house and making a garden is a pretty profound activity. So at least in the column, it was a way to speak directly to the readers about these issues. And did you feel
1: that there was ever a time where you felt that the values you were trying to bring into the magazine of the sort of well-lived life were sort of
2: flying in the face of some of the consumerism of some of the other magazines there? There was an internal tension. I thought of it as a tension more than anything else through the entire course of the magazine. And I think it's always been there. And I think it's also sort of part of American society, but I definitely felt it at House and Garden. You know, all of us who can afford it like nice things, we want nice things, but we also don't Want that to mean we're not good people. We're trying to be good too. And so I was always trying to reach for how do we add another dimension to this very materialistic effort of making a house and making a garden? There are
1: a couple of excerpts of some of your editorials that I want to share with our listeners one that I have in front of me and then one that I have not been able to actually find a copy of, but I'm dying to talk to you about it because it's actually my number one favorite. But this one is from the editorial you titled The Well-Lived Life from June 2004. Sometimes I see something in a photograph that unexpectedly takes my breath away. The corner of a sunny conservatory filled with flowers, snow piled up, Outside against the window panes, the light dancing and glittering, or an armchair in front of the dying embers, a large round table nearby, gleaming with fresh wax, piled high with books, whiskies, flowers, candles. It isn't just the things in the picture. It isn't about buying. Many of us have enough, more than enough stuff. There is always the restless questioning. Is it the right stuff? But that's only because we're looking for something else. The pictures give us a clue to what we want. We imagine our own lives into the pictures. Part of the magic of decorating is the chance to reinvent the way we live. Part of the magic of photographs is that they give us a free trial. They stand still, welcome us in, give us a chance to try on a room, and leave as quickly as we want. It's poetry, Dominique. It's poetry in a shelter magazine. Thank you. (laughs) So talk about how you figured out how you wanted to communicate these thoughts. Why so poignant? Why so imperfect and real and revealing? I think you revealed so much of your own heart in these pieces. Talk about why you wanted to do that.
2: You know, I don't really know. I do know that when I started at House and Garden, a lot of my journalist friends were appalled. And really? they said, oh, they said, "You're going where? To House and Garden?" And literally, you know, half the population does not read Shelter Mag. I mean, a lot, most men don't read Shelter magazines. So, interestingly, when I made my rounds after the magazine folded, A lot of the guys running the industry had no idea what I'd been doing for the last 13 years. Anyway, I started the column as a way of saying to them, this is why I care about this subject, but that's as conscious as I was. I think what happened was that I discovered that I really loved writing, and the essay became my own personal creative outlet every month, and it also forced me to a discipline of finding what was underneath whatever we were doing in the issue. And in fact, it's the essay that inspired my blogging. So now I want to ask you about the effects of love on a stuffed animal. Oh, I do remember that one. I remember Alex coming in with his school project, Alex, my older son. He must have been in first or second grade, and he had to do a a science project. And it was his first science project ever. And I got home, I guess I was late enough that I couldn't really figure it out for him. And he sort of unveiled the project, which was his tattered love object, his froggy-woggy, which was literally in ribbons. It was so worn and old and washed. And the title of the display was The Effects of Love on a Stuffed Animal. It's genius. <laughs> so,
1: that story has stayed with me for all these years, and I've yet to be able to find a copy of the entire okay, essay. But you know what? I will I, I'm hoping you'll that. hook me up. <laughs> okay. So then, abruptly, in 2007, Condé Nast decides to close the magazine, citing it was no longer a viable business investment for the company. How was that possible? 950,000 readers wasn't enough?
2: You know, it wasn't the reader's. The bigger your circulation is, the more you're charging advertisers. That's basically the rule of thumb. Condé Nast charges a premium for its advertising. So where a page in El Decor might cost ten dollars or $15,000, a page in House and Garden or Gourmet or Architectural Digest would cost $125,000. So you can see that it is a very big ask. In the middle of all of this, Condé Nast started. It already had Architectural Digest. They started Vogue Living, and they also started Domino. So they went into the shelter field even deeper um, with four titles asking for a lot of money from advertisers at a time when the economy was beginning to shrink. You add to that that we had turmoil on the business side literally for 12 years And it was just too shaky a situation when the economy began to tank. Now, you've written that
1: the thing about running a magazine was that there was always too much to do, but that you liked being in control of your time and that you were always busy. Do you think that being so busy in your day job at House and Garden fueled some of the depression that you felt not being so busy after you left House and Garden?
2: Oh, definitely. Having all of that fall away out of my life just meant that suddenly my day had no structure. There was no reason to get up. There was no meeting to go to. There was nothing to do. And after a lifetime of a habit of working, that was shocking. You wrote that without work, who
1: was I? what did you discover?
2: And, and I didn't mean, you know, without my title. I never felt like, oh, my title defines me, but it literally was about work. And what I discovered was that I was a person who had come to rely on external habits of work and that I had to become a person who created work for myself. In other words, I became a freelancer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, actually, I think that. You became an artist. Well, thank you. It's <laughs> funny, you never really know what you're doing. I remember at yeah. one point I was sitting at my desk writing and Binky, my agent, called and said, what are you doing? And I was still pretty miserable and I said, I'm not doing anything. And she said, well, what are you literally doing right now? And I said, well, I'm just writing. And she said, you're writing, you're working, that's work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, literally, I thought, oh, duh. Okay, yeah, I am working. I'm just not going to meetings and I'm not running a magazine and I'm not overseeing other people's work. I'm not managing. All of that fell away. And I started doing a very different kind of work. And so that's
1: really how your latest book, Slow Love, How I Lost My Job, Put on My Pajamas and Found
2: Happiness, came out of that experience. So tell us about the title. Why pajamas? Oh, comfort, comfort clothing. I started eating sugar, comfort food. And and eggs, right? Eggs, yeah. (laughs) That was just to have a little bit of protein, what I couldn't get from a chocolate chip cookie. But I just went directly for bed and for feeling like I was in bed all day.
1: Now, when you were doing your writing, was it more journaling or was it really did you ever have the sense that perhaps the notes that you were taking and what you were writing might really turn into slow love?
2: No, when I started, I just started writing to write. Because that was something that I found comforting to do. Then I developed a typing problem, and I could I not. Yes. Yeah, I the could, letter I, the letter I disappeared out <laughs> of every single word that was supposed to have an I in it. Came out without an I, and I, it was such a pain in the neck. P A N in the neck, and I just gave up writing for months. And but you, but you. I mean, it had to have been some sort of a Freudian sort of. It completely, I felt erased. Um, I I just couldn't, I couldn't go there as a place to find comfort, and I I found it again six months later. So ironically, after I started gardening, physically working in the earth, sort of loosened me up. And so, what is the relevance of the title, Slow Love? The title and the prologue were the last things I wrote. It was only as I got towards the end of writing the book, which was kind of towards the end of a year of this process of healing, that I began to understand what I had learned over the last year. And what I had learned was not that I wanted a slow life, which is what I thought I was learning. I didn't want to escape from being busy and from working and from being productive. That was depression. That wasn't a good life. That was a depressed life. That wasn't being all that I could be. I wanted to be busy, but I had learned something very valuable in the course of slowing down. And that was that you can get an enormous amount of nurturing out of connecting with the world around you in small moments throughout every day. And I began to realize that even as my life was beginning to speed up again, I needed to carve out a few minutes of just meditative time for myself when I would just connect with something beautiful, interesting, troubling, whatever it was, but something every day that made me stop and think and just be very, very still. And that's what slow love is about. It's about falling in love with the world around you and stopping long enough to realize that you are being overcome by that feeling and to let it be very healing. Do
1: you feel that those beautiful small moments are moments that most people ignore?
2: I ignore them. I realize that I did. I I did it the whole time I was raising my children. And I look back now and think, About all the times when they were talking to me and I was also reading or and I was also writing something or and I was also, you know, I look back on that and think, why was I doing two things at once? You know, we're such great multitaskers. We need to learn how to monotask.
1: At its core, it seems that Slow Love is a book about
2: reinventing oneself. Yeah, I think I was able to reinvent myself. Or I don't know whether it's reinvent because it was all there, but I had to find a new part of myself and draw on a new part of what I could do. And I also had to go to ground. I had to think about, okay, I mean, I'm in my early 50s. What am I doing going forward? Where am I going? Who is coming with me on this journey? Who's toxic? Who is supportive? What is the kind of work that is going to make me feel like I have been a good person? And what kind of world are we turning over to our children? Those are the kinds of things I began to think deeply about, and maybe in response to what we were talking about earlier, the materialism of the design world, I wanted to go in another direction. You know, I really started to think a lot about the environment, which is something I'd been interested in. but And you started covering
1: that in House and Garden towards the last couple of years before the magazine stopped. Yeah. Now, four months after you were laid off, you decided to sell your house, the house that you wrote about considerably in your essays in the magazine and in your first two books. You called it your forever house. I feel like I know that house from just reading so much of your work. And one of the things that I always found so interesting and I still yearn for and hope one day to be able to have is a sofa in the kitchen. Mm. So talk to us about what what made you decide to put a sofa in your kitchen.
2: Well, It just turned out to be a great place to hang out. The children were young, and I would collapse at the end of a day of work, come home on the train. And it was a nice place to sit and just have them climb on me. And they were past playroom age and not hanging out in their own rooms. So I thought maybe a comfortable chair or a sofa was a nicer thing in the kitchen than a hard surface table. I think you started a whole trend of people wanting to put sofas
1: in their kitchens. Do you have one now in your kitchen? No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the boys are over now, right?
2: Um, So, what made you decide to start a blog? I started the blog because after I finished the book, I missed writing and i also finally understood what i was doing I, I it wasn't it is a book about losing my job and it is a book about recovering and healing and moving out of a depression and it is a book about losing love and children growing up and leaving home it's a book about all of those things but this final place where i end the book with this feeling of falling in love with the world and what that how that just changed my mindset That was the beginning of the blog because I got to this idea of slow love. And then I thought, what does that mean? I'm not going to an ashram. I'm not meditating every day. I'm not doing it that way. I'm doing it in a different way. So what does that mean? What does it mean to have a life of slow love? And that is why I started blogging, to explore that, to hear what other people had to say about it, and to start a conversation around that. All right. I have one last question. Very, very important. I want to talk to you about your hair.
1: (laughs) I read that your mother hates it. Your sister worries about it. Your agent thinks you're hiding behind it. A concerned friend suggests it undermines your professional credibility. But in the middle of your life, you are happy with it, which is saying a lot about anything happening to your 55-year-old body. This is your quote, not mine. (laughs) So tell us about your hair and about being a 55-year-old woman.
2: That's a very funny story because the New York Times called and said, will you write, we hear you, I I guess somebody was a friend of somebody, we hear your hair has gotten really long and it's gray. Will you write about that for the style section? So I said, sure. And that led me to think about, well, why have I grown my hair apart from being incredibly lazy? Why have I done this? So I wrote this piece explaining why and they published it. And even before it came out in the print, section, just as soon as it was posted, the comments started pouring in and they got over a thousand comments. They finally had to just shut down the comment section because they couldn't post people there. So it really hit a nerve. And I think the nerve that it hit was with all of us who are sick and tired of following the so-called rules about how you are supposed to look and who just want to look the way we want to look. It's not a feminist thing. It's a personal style issue. I happen to like my gray hair. I happen not to think that I need to dye my hair. I'm really happy for my friends who dye their hair, but I didn't want to do it. I want long hair, at least for now. I'm just sick of this media idea, marketing idea, you know, corporate idea about how we're supposed to look. And it turned out a lot of people were sick of it. And a lot of people just want to look the way they want to look. (laughs) Well, I think you look gorgeous. And (laughs) I'm so happy that
1: you joined us here on Design Matters. Dominique, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. You can keep up with all of Dominique Browning's fantastic writing on her blog, slowlovelife.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica, and research by Jen Simon. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com, You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.
0: You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data and information in one AI powered place.